Welcome to another episode of PE Talks. I'm Alice and I'm the editor of The Drawdown. Today we're thinking about lessons learned and I couldn't think of a more perfect interviewee for this theme. It's an honour and pleasure to welcome Steve Darrington, CFO and partner at Phoenix Equity Partners. Steve has been CFO at Phoenix since 2001 and as well as his impressive tenure at the PE firm, he's also held corporate roles, notably at The Economist. He's also known for his dazzling poker career, something he's been active in since the tender age of 14. Now I have an easy job today as I'll be handing over to Sam Marsh, Managing Director of AlphaFX, to do the interview. Sam set up Alpha's institutional division back in 2018, a specialist working with the alternative asset market, covering risk management products and its alternative banking solutions. Welcome Sam and Steve. Thank you very much, Alice. And Steve, thank you very much for um, being a part of the conversation this morning. Delighted. As Alice mentioned, obviously the majority of people probably know you and are familiar with you in your role as the CFO um, of Phoenix. But um, as I found out at a, a lunch before Christmas, that your, your actual interest in, in poker uh, predates your, uh, your interest in, in private equity in many ways. Um, whilst a lot of people might not naturally see um, where the two worlds meet. Um, it'd be really interesting to understand from your perspective how your experience within poker has shaped your attitude um, to taking on the role of, of CFO in, in private equity. <coughs> great, well, great opening question. I, uh, I'm, I'm happy to talk about uh, my poker career to the extent that it could be called a career uh, in the knowledge that my wife won't be listening to, <laughs> to this particular podcast. <coughs> um, look, poker is about two things. It's about playing the cards and reading the people. And a, a, a role as a CFO, and I also hold the title of Chief Risk Officer, uh, around uh, an investment committee table is very much uh, less about playing the cards, but definitely about reading the people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as, as a CFO and, and, and definitely as a CRO, um, you, you, you walk a difficult tightrope uh, within a private equity business. You, you are naturally... Uh, your sort of job title almost sort of tells you you've got to think about the glass being half empty, whereas you're, full of, you're, you're in a room full of people who, by definition, are, are in a world where you're looking to take the opportunity that, that is represented potentially by a glass <laughs> half full. Mm. And so, yeah, there, you know, I, I think I would, I would never, uh, on the basis that my colleagues might listen to this, say that I, I could read the room and uh, see their tells, but it's very, very important to, to, to when you're making some sort of intervention or comment or bringing the room back to understanding some of the risk issues uh, that, that you can uh, pick the time to speak uh, and, and sort of recognise the, the dynamics going on within the room. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that's, that's almost kind of the negatives almost shape your, your attitude in many ways in regards to kind of how you learn from, from mistakes and so on. In your perspective, then, looking back, uh, career-wise, corporate prior to um, private equity, poker playing, etc., could you pick a most important or most significant lesson that you've learned? Yeah, and it's it's important to stress. I mean, I am personally an optimist, mm-hmm. uh, but professionally, I have I kind of have to. My job description yeah. kind of says pessimist, um, <clears throat> and so you, know, you you have to balance that. Um, but I've got, I've got two very clear. Uh, things that I that I think about in terms of things things that uh, events that have happened over the years have taught me. Um, uh, one is is the famous phrase that uh, you know, Reagan used uh, in his negotiations with Gorbachev, which is you know trust but verify. 
Um, I won't attempt the uh, uh, well, Dovier, no Provier is, is the <laughs> Russian uh, for it. And I think the, the whole concept of due diligence uh, and everything that goes with it is that process of uh, taking something on face value, but then very much making sure that, uh, that it all stacks up. And I, so I, and I think that's a fundamental plank of, uh, of what mm -hmm. goes on in, in, I can imagine, every venture and private equity firm uh, in, in the world. <clears throat> but I think the other thing that, that I've taught through some, some really painful lessons is you've got to think the unthinkable. You've got to be willing, and possibly you will be the only one in the room that, uh, from a sort of professional critical path analysis, sort of make sure you tick the think the unthinkable box. And I've, I've had a bunch of, uh, you know, a bunch of experiences through my uh, corporate life, but I guess it's sort of one that was a sort of a combination of corporate and personal. I lost a colleague in the 7-7 um, bombings, and I always take the opportunity to, to talk about Helen Jones, who was an absolutely outstanding human being, had the office next to me. She's a brilliant kid, uh, and she died on, on one of the tube attacks. And when the person in the office next to you gets killed in a terrorist attack, you realise that anything can happen. And during the course of that day, when she didn't show up for work, and then there was a lot of uh, chasing around, seeing where she was, you know, towards the end of that day, we, we started to think the unthinkable. Now, that's a very extreme example. But I think in any scenario, uh, whether you're doing a deal, whether you're assessing whether a deal is going well and you should put more money into it, it's very, very important to sort of establish that baseline thought. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't mean to say you have to go there, and you've got to be very careful not, not to be the one that goes yeah. there first every time, um, but it's really, really important. So I think, think the unthinkable and uh, trust but verify. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose that's a, that's a balance to experience as well. I think in any walk of life, like negative outcomes can shape us in a, in a way that can almost guide our thoughts and, and, and stop us from being able to see potentially the more positive side of it. Do you think that is an area of skill you've got better at over time? Are you able to kind of park the emotional scars when going into a deal or into a scenario? Look, I think you absolutely have to. You know, I'm a big, you know, basically if, uh, if I don't use sporting analogies or film analogies, you just have long periods of silence from me. So I'm, <laughs> so I'm going to use a Je Jeffrey Rush uh, 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 in the film Shakespeare in Love. He played a, a theatre entrepreneur and he famously, a great quote, said that you know, the natural condition is one of insurmountable objects on the way to imminent disaster. Um, and I think that's a really good way of characterising entrepreneurship. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that <clears throat> people do it in, in spite of the obvious reasons why they shouldn't. Um, because the reason it, 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 it has significant financial benefits for those that get it right is because everyone else looked at it and sort of said, well, they're crazy, there's no way they can do that. Mm. Um, but entrepreneurs have this sort of inner belief that you know, I'm going to do it yeah. uh, and I'm going to be successful. And I said, there's a fantastic... Uh, Alice mentioned that in a pre previous life I was at The Economist, there's a brilliant, uh, there was a brilliant survey they did where they, uh, they asked 100 Fortune 500 senior managers and 100 members of the Inc. 500, which is a sort of badge of honour uh, in America, Inc. magazine lists the 500 fastest growing companies in America, and I'm pleased to say at one stage uh, we actually managed to make number 20. Um, but um, they asked them 100 questions and then they asked them to go back and rank how sure they were that they got the answers right. And the, um, the Fortune 500 sort of uh, management in big corporate, uh, they got 76% of the questions right, but they were 46% sure that they got them right. The entrepreneurs, on the other hand, got 46% of the questions right, but were 96% sure that they got them right. So yeah. it, it, the, the entrepreneurs knew, knew less, 
but believed more. Mm -hmm. And I think that's fundamental. And uh, the job we do, our job, you know, is to back entrepreneurs. The definition of entrepreneur is taker of risk, risk taker. Um, and it is our job to deploy capital. We, we can't sit there for five years with our funding and sort of suck our teeth every time we see an opportunity and decide on the balance of probability we're not going to do it. Our job is to deploy capital. And so what I, abs I would not last 10 minutes uh, if I were to sit there and, and try and say no to everything. Uh, you know, my colleagues would have fired me a long, long time ago. So you have to, you, you have to again, it's, it's reading the room. You have to be willing to assess... Um, the you know, the manageable risks, uh, the known knowns, etc., uh, mm -hmm. etc., et and you do have to be part of the team. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, apart from anything else, you know, I invest my own my own money alongside my colleagues in all of our deals, um, and you know, you have to be comfortable. We we have I, I like to think at Phoenix an incredibly open and collegiate approach. You know, there is you know, and we also have a we also have an investment committee process that is designed to flush out concerns as early as we possibly can, but uh, there is no deal we've ever done where it was done over the head of any, any partner. We, you know, we, we really do, but, yeah. it, but it's important. You know, our job is to do deals. Yeah. Uh, our job is to take risks, so you can't be afraid of risk. Um, but you, know, you are backing entrepreneurs, and, and to some degree, your team within a private, you know, certainly the deal-facing uh, team, you know, they will be of that ilk as well. They are looking for opportunities, looking for people to back. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a balance, uh, and I think, you know, Fortunately, I have significant ballast uh, physically, um, so I can sometimes sit on the uh, on the you know on one side of the scales. But it's not my job to stay there permanently. I have you know you've got yeah. to be flexible. I think that's an interesting point as well. The reality is, not every entrepreneur is successful, but the mindset and the attitude can can be there. And I think anyone who's willing to try, they always need to have that as a basic core principle. Thinking about that and the ability and the conviction in your in your opinion or your view must be similar to that of the deal team and there must be circumstances where in a similar way you need to bring someone back from their own level of conviction because not every business is successful and therefore not every deal that is presented is, is accurate how do you balance that how do you between being and as you say between a naysayer but being able to have like strong governance strong, strong risk um, the risk hat on at the same time yeah I mean uh, kind of uh, James Carvel sort of, uh, worked sort of sculpting Clinton's campaign in 1992, coined the famous phrase, it's, it's the economy, stupid. Um, and, and in private equity, it's risk, stupid. Um, effectively, our job is to assess and price risk. You know, we, we have a feel for what the risk of any particular deal is, and, and we measure that versus the economic upside. Uh, you, you know, moderate risk 2x, high risk 10x uh, is scenario, and, and you, you try and calibrate and understand that. I think uh, you know one of the uh, one of the lessons I learned uh, was our former chairman David Gregson, who he, who's a fantastic uh, chap and, and has the brilliant capability of uh, sort of delivering quite a harsh statement, but you're not realising that it's a harsh statement as it's been delivered. And one of the things he was he would always say is, "You will of course have thought about," uh, and I uh, have shamelessly nicked that one. Uh, and uh, so if you if you do find yourself in a situation where uh, you know there is a sort of elephant in the room, but it's, but it's not being addressed. Uh, I, I think a, a relatively good t tool is to be. You will, of course, thought about this, and you can uh, you know, back to poker. But you can tell immediately by their face whether indeed they have thought about that yeah. or not, and, it, and if they 
if they haven't, then then that's a way of introducing that into into the uh, into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say, you know, it's it's the team's job to to assess the upside and, and downside. It's just to some degree, you know, and I think you you always as a finance director, CFO, CRO, doesn't matter whether you're in private equity or not, you you often end up being slightly the corporate conscience. Um, that sort of slightly nagging on the shoulder, saying, "Well, let, 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 can we just make sure we've thought about this?" And that can be all sorts of risk management. Uh, you know, whether it can be, uh, you know, the, the coherence of the team, the health of the team, the, you know, the markets, political risk. You know, risk has become. <clears throat> so, I personally believe risk, risk is, you know, it's, risk is the new black. Uh, it, it really is a, a fundamental to everything we do. And I say, we, there's lots and lots and lots of things that we could. Talk about ESG is a massive thing at the moment, but again, that is a that is a, another way of managing, and it, uh, it's, a, it's a way of doing the right thing, but it's also a way of managing risk. Yeah, and and looking into that, then it's ESG is obviously the very much the the, the the hot topic at the moment. It is driving a lot of decision making, obviously without going into like huge detail because that could could lead to a conversation in its own right, but. How fundamental now is that to your kind of own, adding that to another spoke in the wheel of risk for you as the chief risk officer, how significant is that now as a key principle within the deal process for you? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great and really timely question. I think I, I've, broadly speaking, quarterback, been loosely responsible for ESG since about 2005. Uh, and, you know, probably from 2005 to 2015, I was able to craft, uh, you know, a relatively robust narrative. You know, look, we we are responsible investors. Um, we always have been, and, and we always will be. You know, we're, we're signatures of UNPRI, um, and um, but we weren't sort of we didn't wear it on our sleeve, nor did it, nor was it a fundamental, nor was it a front-footed thing. It kind of we did it anyway because that was in our DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I and I think you know with ESG you know, environmental and social governance, the governance bit is what private equity do. It's what we've done for years and years and years. I mean, we particularly in the venture and the, the sort of the mid-market world, we're taking businesses that have um, you know the, the entrepreneurs have been fighting their growth battle for for, for, for many sometimes many years. Sometimes uh, it can happen quite quickly, but their focus is on growth. It's proof of concept, turning into revenue. Uh, building a business and turning profit, positive yeah. cash flow, all those sort of key milestones that any growing entrepreneurial business is required. They then reach a phase where, where institutional capital uh, is involved. Uh, and with institutional capital comes institutional expectations and requirements. Uh, and we happen to be relatively good at that. And we know what to do. We know governance is, is kind of what we do. It's how we yeah. add value. We we can take businesses, t- sort of tidy up the governance profile, and then that makes them more attractive to, to the next size, the next phase, or indeed a, a corporate buyer. So, um, you know, we've always done G, and, and, and we're pretty good at G. <clears throat> the environmental and social, I think, it, 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 to, to a large extent, most of the businesses we invest in have, have always done that. If it's fundamental to their business, they've always done it. And, you know, we've, we've never met a management team that, you know, we've identified a key issue for them. Uh, and, the, and the CEO's gone, really? Oh, I never really thought of that. Uh, you know, usually they'll kind of look at us and say, yeah, yeah, we're on that. Um, yeah. However, you know, because it's, we're now using institutional capital, institutional capital uh, has the same pressure. So if you're investing, uh, you know, and I think this, this comes back to one of my, you know, if my wife allowed me to have a tattoo, it, it would be, um, you know, it's other people's money. It's the thing I, I remember every, genuinely remember every single day of my working life. 
we invest other people's money and with other people's money comes other people's expectations um, mm -hmm. and and a lot of those now relate to fairness equality balance uh, you know the uh, the environment which is it is, it is, you know, if it isn't risk stupid, it's definitely the environment. Yeah. Um, and so those, you know, trustees can uh, bring that to the the, the, uh, the board table of the large institutional investors whose capital we deploy. They can then turn to uh, to the general partners ourselves, and then we in turn turn to our portfolio companies. And I think, you know, we there's a sort of there's a phrase that you know something rolls downhill. That's not the way to look at it. The way to look at it is we're we're building a, 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 an ecosystem whereby we we all have an incentive to do the right thing and to and to maximise our profile with regards to you know, environmental social governance. And and increasingly, uh, you know, the regulators have you know very we always kind regulators have helped us by providing regulation around mm -hmm. uh, environmental sustainable finance disclosure. You know, we've got in Europe, there's Article 98, uh, where you've got sort of enhanced ESG credentials. Increasingly, that may well be an allocation uh, model where the, the institutions start to think, well, we want a proportion of our money in Article 9 compliant, Article 8 compliant. Uh, so increasingly, it's in business's interest. There, there'll be a demand. There's a, there's a very good, you know, I think the, the price of virgin plastic is about the third of recycled plastic now because the demand for recycled plastic has mm. gone hugely up as the big corporates say, you know, by 2030 we'll have 50%. Well, I, you know, I, I don't think there's that much recycled plastic in the world. Yeah. And therefore, the demand and supply has forced up the price of recycled plastic. I think the same may well happen for, you know, really highly... Uh, attributed ESG related businesses you know uh, institutional investors will want them in their portfolio yeah. in order to demonstrate their uh, you know they're not just saying what they're doing I think that's the interesting point as well is that ESG and its evolution is as you say it's kind of dictating almost it's being kind of forced down through regulation but actually there's there's many people who this is a primary concern of theirs and, and that might be seen as a kind of a, young, a younger generation where it's just innate in their in their thinking um, how do you think that's uh, well thinking about from now current portfolio companies about how they may want that from the capital that's deployed into them and kind of assessing you as a as a source of funding how you're adhering to ESG do you think their kind of awareness of a portfolio company's awareness of what they want from a partner from an investment private equity company has changed from when you first started Phoenix to today and yeah no look, there's absolutely no doubt I mean I think uh, you know late 90s early 2000s uh, you, you know, the simple reality there were quite a lot of club deals um, where you know the t two or three private equity firms would get together put put some money in a pot and, and then you know would go and open the briefcase mm. and there it all was and the, the manager would say oh thank you very much and all that <laughs> those days are gone um, mm. You know, we're, a, we're in a competitive industry. We've got fantastically innovative uh, peers in our industry. Uh, and we are, we are competing. We, you know, we call it you know, winning hearts and minds. You go into a management team and there is absolutely no guarantee that they're going to take your money uh, because your money needs to come with other attributes. And you're right, whether, you know, whether it's be a clear uh, commitment to, uh, to, to, to ESG and all that goes with that, uh, but it also has to come with the ability to work as a team, the ability to provide them something that other people don't, uh, the fundamental ability to, you know, if you if you dare go to a management meeting and think you're going to learn learn the business during the meeting, don't bother, you've lost. 
Um, you need to be absolutely all over their business model, understand their drivers, understand what their objectives are, understand the 10 targets in their industry they, they should acquire. Um, and so, you know, we, we, know, we are absolutely selling ourselves to, to a, uh, you know, it's, the, it's a buyer's market uh, yeah. now. And there, there's a lot of capital out there, which means there's a lot of people, that love, there's a lot of frogs they can kiss. And, you know, we're, we're the frogs nowadays. Mm-hmm. Is, is you saying that as well because obviously from your career prior to, to Phoenix you worked within as you mentioned within corporate corporate space how much does your kind of prior corporate experience and it was quite a period of time as well it wasn't kind of one or two years it was a lengthy period you yeah. were engaged in making those kind of corporate decision making in, in, in an exec code how much does that help you to influence or em- empathise with the challenges of a portfolio companies board or, or management team yeah, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very good point, and uh, you know, this is something I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to say uh, the, the risk of the, the, my portfolio CFOs uh, commenting in, uh, the other way. But I, I like to think, and my experience has been, um, I, I've got a very open, uh, open door slash phone line, uh, and I do have a lot of interaction with our CFOs. Yeah. Well, the one thing. Uh, you know, I, I joined Phoenix because I was the CFO of a business in America, uh, which Phoenix was an investor, uh, and got to know the partner, the, the founding partners, as a result of that. And, and when they when they did the when they did the deal, they asked me to join. And um, uh, so, you know, I have I have lived being a being a CFO. I've lived being a private equity CFO. I've lived public market CFO. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, I've got a reasonable amount of. Uh, Coverage that I, you know, I, I'm, and I'm also, you know, I'm always well, happy to give my opinion on something. Um, so, you know, but but the one thing I absolutely remember is uh, you, certainly the first time you're involved with private equity, you, you don't like to, you're not terribly keen on phoning up your large investor and, and tell them you don't understand something. <laughs> you know, you kind of feel well, I'm a CFO, so it's my job to know all this stuff. Um, and there was, you know, when I look back uh, in, in my salad years, it, 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 I, I'm blushing now at how much I didn't know. Um, so what I've always tried to do is to make myself available to uh, to CFOs. And, and in fact, we, we've enhanced that over the years. We, we have a CFO conference every year where we get everyone in a, in a room. Uh, during the pandemic, we had, a, we had weekly CFO calls on, on the basis that it was very clear that we all were facing something we hadn't dealt with before getting everyone on a call every week, we could talk about, you know, what you're going to do about this, what you're going to do about that, and unburdening and making sure you were part of a group was incredibly mm-hmm. valuable, uh, to the extent now we, we've now reduced them to monthly, but, uh, and we, we sort of had a refresh the other day and asked, you know, is this useful, Are you, you know, is it worthwhile, should we carry on doing it, and we got 100% yes please, and so mm-hmm. that, you know, we, we, I try and be as collegiate as I possibly can a, a, across the portfolio, Look, we're all, you know, we're all part of the same team, our objectives are are the same and I think you know that's that, you know, that's fundamental to you know it's not we're not doing it to them uh, mm. in, in, to the extent that we ever did but we're certainly not now it's, we are part of a wider team that, and, we, and the objectives are the same you know we're all yeah. trying to we're all trying to build successful businesses and help them grow. Uh, what you're saying then as well about the, the conviction in, in your own thoughts and stuff in terms of how you grow up in in an industry and you look back and you kind of as you say you cringe at kind of how little you actually knew at those points in time but there are also moments where you just have that like shell shock okay we're now uh, this is this is completely unforeseen from a we mentioned before personal level like the shell shock with your losing your colleague but professionally like those big 
almost Armageddon moments, the kind of the wake up moments. Are there anything there that really sticks out from your perspective? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of things that sort of really, uh, you know, ma- massive learning. You know, I, I, through my career, I've, I've been involved in two lawsuits. You know, we, we came out of them relatively unscathed, but, uh, I, you know, it's definitely one thing I would, they were remarkable learning opportunities. You know, I, I did an MBA and learned a bunch of stuff. I, I, I got sued for $100 million, and, and uh, I can tell you, uh, I learned a hell of a lot more in that than I ever did at business school. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, we, I, I, and I, 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 we, we had one at Phoenix where, you know, and, you know, we came out of them unscathed, but the, the process of a lawsuit is inevitably there are, there are two sides. Uh, and the other side, they're, we, we, you tend to refer to them as the, as the bad guys, but they're, they're just the other side that have a different point of view. And, and as part of it, they go through a process of questioning your every decision. Uh, and often quite publicly, and, and, and you know, if you've if you've ever been through a discovery process, you know how rigorous that questioning can be, and it's um, it's quite sobering to, uh, to you know every decision I can definitely say every decision I've ever made in corporate life uh, is is one where you know remembering I get up every morning in our world and it's other people's money, and that characterises the, the way I think. Uh, it, just because you can doesn't mean to say you should keep asking yourself those questions. Um, but it's not very nice having you know, quite high-powered lawyers uh, asking you questions and characterising your decisions in a way that fundamentally wasn't true, but, but also actually can fundamentally cause you to question those decisions mm. and, and go through them. And, and I think what I, what I learnt as a result of that was the, this ability, uh, kind of not all the, all the time, but certainly at times where you think a decision is an, of an important nature, and might be one you know that has two sides to it. try and step out almost have an out of body experience and step and look back at yourself and uh, you know I, I remember having a conversation with, with, with somebody who I knew that had um, you know that had gone through a very difficult corporate situation and had been held to account uh, for a decision and I, and I asked them the question um, what would others he, he gave me his version of events and, and I asked him the question, how would others describe and he sat there for a while and he said, wow, that's a good question. I've never thought of that. Uh, and it really brought home to me that that ability to step out of, of the, why am I making the decision? I know it's right because of this, 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 this. And you've been living it every day and every hour, often 24 hours mm. and many days. Stop, step out and say, really? really you know, is, could this be looked at a different way? And I think by doing that, you know, you, to some degree, you'll, you'll occasionally see, uh, you know, yeah, it could actually. And I, perhaps I ought to think about that before we go ahead and do that. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, rule number one: don't get sued. But uh, but uh, you know, it, it, it is it is a learning experience, and, and it definitely, I think, it's one of those things you, just, you can't you can't tell a child what hot is. Mm. Children find out what hot is by touching something hot, and to some degree, it's made me, I think, uh, you know, orders of magnitude better at understanding risk because sometimes the worst things do happen, mm. um, and uh, you know, so. Um, just that break and the ability to step out and look back on yourself and say, okay, am I sure? Yeah. Does it, obviously, the being sued twice in that same respect, as you say, positive outcomes on, on both, but looking back at them, are there any anything similarities, any anything that you can draw upon that made you go, actually, in a later stage, seeing similar warning signs has led you down a, to avoid such instant, instances? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I think um, I, I think it's that moment of um, 
asking the question, typically we are, our behavior is governed by what's best for us, what's best for us, our firm, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> um, when you have multiple stakeholders, um, you do have to go through those stakeholders and say, it might be best for us, but is it best for them? Or if it's not best for them, as long as it's not fundamentally detrimental to their interests. Mm -hmm. And I think if you do something that potentially is detrimental to someone's... Now, that, now that, to some degree, that's part of competitive life. Um, at, you know, and, you know, the lawsuit in America, you know, we were involved with a company that subsequently became the largest bankruptcy in human history. Um, we were trying to compete with someone who wasn't competing fairly. We were never going to win. Um, so, but that came out uh, in, in years, years following that. But um, so, yeah, so I, I think that's that's the the, the the lesson learned on that one. It is, uh, you know, as long as what try and make sure uh, because because that's what's best for you and your company and your shareholders and your investors isn't fundamentally detrimental to, uh, or, uh, detrimental. And if it is. Be absolutely sure that you're doing it for the right reasons. There's, uh, you know, you, you've got to characterise and understand because that's you know, lawsuits happen because two sides disagree about fundamental intentions of, a, of an action, mm -hmm. um, and so you've got to make sure that you you consider the other shareholders. You know, I think one of them actually we absolutely did took advice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but nevertheless, and because at the end of the day, if you've got the money and the intention, you can sue anyone for anything. Yeah, and I suppose it goes back to that same point: is that in, in an environment where a lot of people You've got a portfolio company that is, or prospective portfolio company that has great conviction in their their business and, and their outlook, and you've got a potentially a deal team also saying this is a brilliant deal, everything works well. Is that, a, and I think we touched on it briefly before, but just to kind of go into it, is that a role which you've grown grown into the ability to walk the line between being too negative, being too, over, too overly optimistic, as you say, your natural demeanour is a positive person. So it's being able to find that healthy balance, I think, is, is interesting. Yeah, I, I look, and the bottom line is, I, I, I think it come, the fundamental uh, attribute you need is respect from the deal team. Mm. Uh, I was very lucky at Phoenix in that, you know, I think one of our first four or five deals was actually my deal. Uh, I, I had a relationship with, uh, with somebody here and uh, was, was able to sort of deliver a, a deal on the plate, which was a good deal for us, and we made money. So to some degree, my colleagues, uh, you know, it, and, to, and, and also, you know, I, and I'm seeing this across our industry, but our industry has grown to such a ridiculous extent now. We are a remarkably broad church from, you know, from the venture world, you know, through the, the lower mid-market, the mid-mid-market, the upper mid-market, up to the, mm -hmm. to, the, to, the, to the big guys. Um, and the role of CFO uh, in, in those businesses can be hugely different. You know, I'm, you know, we have 28 people in our team. Um, and... Uh, you know, six on the uh, investment committee plus plus me with my responsibilities uh, for our offshore uh, boards, um, and, and therefore, you know, I'm around in everything we ever do. You know, mm. as as are our other partners. You know, we're involved in everything. Um, you know, if you're in a, a much much bigger firm and you've got a sort of slightly more defined and constrained responsibilities, um, then you, you'll you'll answer this question very very differently. But the one thing for me is. To be able to participate in investment committee discussions and, and, and make non-CFO type comments, commercial views, you know, I've got some you know, reasonably good experience across different industries, um, but it's all done to gain gain the respect of your colleagues. If you get the respect of your colleagues, if, if you then do have to make a comment of, you know, look, 
you know, I don't like the look of this, this you know, um, they, they stop and listen to it. They don't immediately roll their eyes and go, oh, here we go. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and I think, I think, enough, I think for me, doing a deal early, uh, putting, getting runs on the board, so to speak, uh, made my colleagues think, okay, yeah, all right, this, this, you know, this guy's, he's not, he's not a bean counter. Yeah. Because um, that's, you know, I, I had a discussion with my current chairman uh, when, when I joined the firm. I, I said, if, if you want a bean counter, it ain't me. Um, so. Yeah. It's interesting, we're talking about kind of lessons learned, not at any point we kind of really thought about or talked about the, the technical side of, of being a CFO, it's, it seems to be much more the, the human element where you personally see the significance. Yeah, I do actually, because the technical stuff is, um, you know, it's, you've got to learn it and to some degree you, um, you know, I, I think the, 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 the thing in our world, we're quite used to uh, asking for professional advice, you know, we we very small team. We, we outsource financial, legal, potentially commercial due diligence. We're used to using advisors, so uh, it's perfectly fine. Particularly, you know, particularly when you, you've got a, you know, we were a sector investor, but even within those sectors, there are thousands and thousands of companies. And so, you know, if you if you think you know it, know it all, then that that's the first uh, route to disaster because you don't. I mean, that's one thing you can absolutely guarantee. Yeah. Um, so asking for advice and help. Is uh, you know is is a fundamental part of what we do, and so you know you, you, over the years you ask for you know you get to know good advisors, uh, good business partners, uh, and and work with them and, and and learn from them. So to some degree, you know you, you, there's a technical you know we we all go to school and you know I I, I, you know, I did the usual route, qualified as an accountant, did an MBA, um, but you know that's that's a sort of that's table stakes. If back to a another reference um, and, and the, but the, it's the experience and, and, and applying the technical issues and again it's the, the technical knowledge is knowing about um, is knowing where your knowledge ends and where you yeah. need to get specialist advice or, or, or knowing where your knowledge raises red flags because that's the point you know if, if, if a red flag is raised in your mind you need, you need you know, don't walk away from it you need to make sure you understand the potential implications. Now, sometimes red flags are, you know, it's it's a warning, but it doesn't mean to say you can't do it. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes the red flags are, are, you know, really, really don't do this, uh, <laughs> and you need to understand and, and characterise that. Mm -hmm. I think there is one area uh, which I, I think, it, you know, it's it's really in the last five years is fundamentally changing from a technical perspective. Um, uh, back to film references, there's an absolutely uh, Apollo 13, brilliant film. Ed Harris, head of head of uh, sort of mission control, um, it's all going terribly wrong, everyone's pulling their hair out, and he, he sort of very calmly says, uh, let's work the problem, people, don't make it worse by guessing. And that is, you know, kind of, that's my last film quote. Um, <laughs> and that's where data comes in, in our world. In the last five years, um, data and the ability to use data is now, has now become completely and utterly ubiquitous. Mm. and. Um, my son's a data analyst and um, he, he has a brilliant way of describing the, the impact that data now has and this is kind of the way kids talk to their dads <coughs> dad you've got a lifetime experience and the way you deal with the decision tree points is to apply your experience at each point you look at a situation you say what, are, what is my experience of that and that's the reason I'm going to choose. He said, what we do with data is every time we get there, 
we get as much data as we possibly can, we crunch the data, and the data tells us the questions we should ask and the direction we should go. And that's what they do now. And the, mm. the, the people that can do it well increasingly just have an absolutely fundamental advantage over people that don't. And I think for, for us, uh, and, I, and I'm about to do a, a course in data analytics at Columbia University, uh, partly so I can stop being beat up by my son, but partly because I want to show that a 58-year-old git can embrace this stuff, can fully understand it. Mm. So I can turn around to, to my colleagues and say, look, don't be afraid. Uh, and now we've got people within our business that are absolutely outstanding at this. Um, but then we've got, you know, our generation are less so. We didn't really come across it. To some degree, it's a bit of a, uh, bit of a closed system, but, you know, a bit of a, a box that we don't look in. Um, but I think fundamentally, um, the last five years has been the sort of advent of real of data becoming data and data management becoming ubiquitous. The next five years is when it's really going to be used in anger for competitive advantage. Yeah, and, and do you think that's just kind of covering off what you're saying there as well? Is I suppose is recognizing limitations and, and recognizing where actually there's there's experts that can support you and and help. It does part of that being able to say actually no, I'm that's not where I'm strong at. Does that come from experience and confidence of evolving in the role? Or do you think it's just something that the, the best people do quite nat naturally? Look, I think it, it, it's, um, I think it's something, if you do it, it's funny how you end up kind of being better at it. Yeah. So it's whether it's the best people do it, I, I don't know if it's, you know, it's cause or effect, chicken and egg. Um, but I, if you, if you don't do it, I, I, look, I, I think uh, one of the most important things in anyone is, is the ability to, to be honest about what you don't know. Um, because if you, if, you, if you don't do that, you're very unlikely to mm. learn. So you limit the boundaries of, of your development. Uh, and I, you know, I, I absolutely believe it. And, I, and, to, you know, to, and I, I personally have learned that lesson over years. I mean, there certainly was a time where you felt, that, well, I, you know, I'm supposed to know this stuff. I don't say I don't. Uh, but I think as you get older and a little bit more confident, and, and as you realize that you know, you, what you know is actually a tiny fraction of what you don't know. Yeah. Um, the ability to be honest and, and, and seek out experts uh, or, or even just other opinions. I, you know, I think it's, uh, the, you know, my father had a phrase that used to remind me that I had two ears and one mouth in that proportion for a reason. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it is, you know, you, you learn by listening, uh, mm. not, not so much by, uh, you know, by what you believe you know. Yeah. And um, I think we've got time for one more question. Um, one thing that's always struck me from, from the private capital industry is how strangely collaborative it is for what is actually extremely competitive in, in many circumstances. As someone who I know is very open to, to working with people and speaking to people, giving advice, and, and I've seen you at conferences where you're kind of people are chewing your ear at many occasions, do you think as an industry and CFOs or, or even COOs do enough to, to collaborate with one another and, and understand what could be quite an isolating role how there are others connecting to others who are going through the same challenges. Yeah, I think we're pretty good at it actually, uh, and I think there, there's a bunch of reasons. Um, I think this is a you know a, a shout out to a, a chap who used to be CFO at BC Partners called Mike Twinning, who's re retired some years ago. Super guy, who kind of put, pulled together. Uh, uh, one thing I always thought it was he, the well, he pulled together what's called the the FD group. Um, so, fantastic idea for, uh, yeah, for collaboration, 
not great at marketing, uh, the FD group not being the most mm. exciting thing. But we used to get together uh, every quarter, and to some degree, you know, obviously COVID's been slightly weird for that, but to uh, some degree we, we still do. It's a closed group. We can you know, chat on house rules, talk about stuff. Um, that we've got uh, various splinter groups. Uh, we've got one in the mid-market where uh, seven of us get together quarterly and share not commercial secrets, but practical, you know, our jobs are remarkably similar. Uh, we just do them for different firms, and so and, and we share. Uh, and you know, t tonight I'm going to I'm actually going to a CFO COO drinks at the BBCA. Uh, so they've played a great role in bringing uh, in take, you know recognizing the role is a, is a slightly different one, uh, and bringing us together an opportunity. And um, you know, sparing blushes, uh, the drawdown has, has has done a fantastic job at really identifying that sort of uh, again that you know to some sometimes it can, can be a bit of a lonely job what we do. There's you know there might be sort of 10 deal partners but one of us and there's, mm. there's kind of usually only one of us in any firm um, so it's nice to have some some friends to talk to and uh, uh, you know I, I think Drawdown has done a, a fantastic job at, at, at sort of highlighting with you know with the magazine and, and things like this uh, highlighting those issues that we that we share and providing a platform for us to sort of talk about them and, and share opportunities and, and, and problems and experiences. Perfect well thank you very much very enjoyable conversation. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. It's been a pleasure.